You are listening to episode 26 of the Tennis Files podcast, a recap of the 2016 City Open with Malumba from Tennis Column. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the show. I really appreciate you guys joining me today. And uh, I'm going to be recapping the City Open tennis tournament with my buddy Malumba from Tennis Column. Uh, over the past uh, week, well, last week, we had a blast covering the tournament. As many of you know, um, I was able to secure media credentials uh, as a result of uh, having my site and podcast. So I was able to interview over 20 players one-on-one. A uh, huge shout-out to my photographer and one of my best friends, Victor, uh, for helping me with that. And so it was just really amazing to meet all the wonderful players and uh, I was also able to interview Ivo Karlovic, who made the finals against uh, Gael Monfils from France. And the tournament was just uh, really awesome. And, uh, you know, I have to give a shout out to, first off, a uh, friend from uh, Vavil uh, named Noel. And then Steve from Tennis Atlantic. Uh, and also, I really appreciate the help that... Uh, Edward and Joshua, who are the uh, ATP reps, um, all the assistance they gave in setting up the interviews and uh, dealing with the players on the men's side. Thanks to Kate, uh, who was the WTA representative for setting up the interviews with the uh, female tennis pros. And as well as uh, Link Strategic Partners, Molly, Sheena, and Cindy, they were just awesome uh, in running the whole thing uh, for the media. And Patricia from Design Cuisine, who was uh, so amazing in bringing out all the food every day. So anyway, just wanted to get those shout outs out of the way. Um, appreciate those guys and gals. Appreciate you. And I'm going to you know, bring you a just a discussion of the City Open finals, you know, the men's, women's uh, singles finals, as well as the doubles finals. And then recap also our other thoughts on the City Open, as well as just talk about uh, Federer's huge announcement recently and even Nick Kyrgios' obsession with Pokemon Go. So without further ado, here is my discussion of the 2016 City Open Tennis Tournament with Malumba from Tennis Column. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. I'm very happy to bring back my friend Malumba from Tennis Column, and we had a great conversation uh, on the last episode about the City Open where we recapped a couple of the day's action. I believe we, we talked up until day two of the main draw. And uh, Malumba, I just want to welcome you back and uh, thank you so much for making yourself available again. My pleasure. Thanks Thanks for having me. I, I really enjoyed myself the last time, and uh, so I'm looking forward to talking some more tennis as always. Yeah, same here. I mean, I had a blast and, uh, you know, people really love the episode and you just have such a great knowledge of the game. So, um, it's just going to be great to 
kind of just recap what happened uh, up until the finals, pretty much. Um, but yeah, I guess let's just dive right in. So as many of you guys may know in the audience, um, Monfils edged Karlovic uh, in the final. Um, pretty pretty entertaining final. Went to three sets. Uh, I just remember being on the bench uh, on the court with my photographer, and um, we were just sweating so hard because it was, what, about like 140 degrees on court temperature? I think it, 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 I think it was about, a, yeah, I, I saw 135. It probably was hotter, and I thought, you know, it was quite dangerous, but uh, hopefully they both made it through in one piece. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about, uh, you know, the doubles, one of the guys in the doubles kind of having a lot of trouble with it. Um, so much so they didn't, he didn't make the, uh, trophy presentation, right? But, um, yeah, but yeah, so just such a great match. And I, you know, both players were gunning for their first ATP 500 title and, um, you know, obviously Karlovic, he, he played great, but he just, uh, just fell a little short. Um, if you want to just, you know, talk about your thoughts on the match. Yeah. Well, to be honest with you, it's funny. Um, it, it turned out to be a great final. Um, but as I was writing, you know, I was writing my, my write-up about it. And by the way, I enjoyed your write-up of the final as well and sort of the mix of the interviews that you did uh, uh, about the final of the City Open. So uh, hats off on that. Thanks. But uh, I, was, I was initially thinking that this was probably one of the worst finals I'd ever seen <laughs> uh, because it was just, you know, a lot of serve and return, very few points, more than four or five shots, if that. Right. I mean, four or five shots would have been considered a rally for the first, like, set and a half. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, Karlovic appeared to get nervous. He also, to me, appeared to get maybe a little bit tired in the legs, which may have cost him a few more first serves in that critical game where he was serving for it. And, uh, and that's when it started to get really interesting. Uh, so in the end, it was a great final. Yeah, it certainly was, Malumba. I mean, to be honest, for the first set, I wasn't able to watch this because I was waiting with one other guy, uh, Noel from Vavil, for um, the one of the doubles champs to have the per, uh, you know hold a press conference. But um, I, I just know that Karlovic was able to get a break at the end there and then win the set 7-5. Um, do you remember how exactly that happened? Was it just mistakes from Gale? Yeah, I think he had a he had a loose serve uh, service game, and you know Karlovic just took advantage of it. I have to say, you know, I have been not the biggest fan of Karlovic's game. I like him personally, and I like his personality, and I like his commitment. But I've not been a huge fan of his game just because it's it's you know it's very much it's it seems very one dimensional. Having said that, with a serve like that, if you didn't you know, if you didn't construct your game around that enormous serve and play in the way that best takes advantage of that serve as an advantage, uh, you wouldn't be much of a tennis player. You wouldn't be much of a strategist. So I have to say that Karlovic was really doing exactly what he needed to do. First of all, he was serving out of his, you know, out of his socks, uh, like he almost always does. But he was keeping the points very short. He was coming to net. Uh, every chance he got, particularly on the return of serve, um, he was hitting a lot of hard, flat cross-court forehands, which is probably the e easiest shot for somebody, you know, six foot eleven to hit on the tennis court. Um, and he was also hitting a lot of really deep, penetrating slice approaches, which mm -hmm. I think Bonfils was having trouble with in the beginning, mm -hmm. uh, which I found very interesting. Um, and I, 
he was just playing really well. He wasn't making any mistakes. He was hitting a lot of winners. He had a number of return winners. He really put Monfils under a lot of pressure by aggressively going after his return every chance he had. And uh, I, that basically cost Monfils to serve, and it, you know, it just took one, one, one service game there, and that was the end of it. So, Yeah, I mean, I, I really do appreciate, like you mentioned, the fact that Karlovich recognizes his strengths and really for him he just keeps it simple because I think you know we all know that if he tried to rally with most of the professional players he wouldn't win much <laughs> wouldn't win many points um, yeah. but just uh, unbelievable serve uh, just it was so frustrating for Monfils that I remember in uh, I believe it was two all in the second set I mean they were both on serve obviously but uh, after a couple aces in a row, Gal just looked at his box and threw his hands up in the air, and then he actually slapped the uh, the scoreboard, I believe, and was just like, "What in the heck am I? How am I going to break this guy?" Yeah, it was a big joke. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty funny. But um, like you said, like at uh, at five serving four to close out the match, Karlovich, um, and he said this in the press conference, um, which I was, I guess, slightly surprised, not really, but he said that, you know, I asked him, I said, oh, you know, were you thinking about winning at that point? And he was like, oh, yeah, you know, like, I, it's normal to think about winning when, before you're trying to close it out. But, um, unfortunately, I just wasn't able to serve well. And so, you know, he, he missed a couple of consecutive, I think three consecutive first serves. So, That's then, right. yeah. So he gave, Montfis, good looks at it, at those serves, and um, that was, I guess, his undoing. And then, like Gail said, and like he said as well, he just got tired because, I guess, a couple hours of serving and volleying in that heat is a little too much for um, for most people to uh, keep up at a very high level. Um, yes, so. very taxing. Yeah, and, and, and when you add on top of that that he had you know, won Newport a mm-hmm. week before, uh, I think that's a lot of tennis in two weeks. That's basically – that's more tennis than he would play at a major actually in two weeks. So <laughs> that's, I, I think it was a tremendous effort on his part. Well, I take that back because it's two out of three instead of uh, best of five. But it's, it's a lot of tennis over two weeks, and I, I think it eventually took a toll on him. I really felt that he started to get tired, and he did appear to get some treatment at the end of the match. So I think he was feeling the heat. I think he was feeling, you know, the cumulative effect of all those matches. But, um, you know, Monfils really, really took advantage of the opportunity when it presented itself, and I was, I was very pleased uh, that he was able to persevere and win a match that, you know, if you look at the record of his career, particularly in, in uh, tournament finals. He normally would have given up and lost this match, you know, mm-hmm. by the the start of the second set. So it was it was it's a good sign for him, and I hope this is a, a kind of a, a wake up call, a turnaround for for his career. It's never too late, um, and uh, he really he really made some some technical changes this week too that I thought was were, were very valuable. Hey, can you talk about those technical changes that you noticed? Sure. So I mean, on the serve, I would say there were there was. It was one technical change and really two tactical changes. Um, Monfils used to just sort of jump into his serve. Uh, but this week he started taking a step into the serve. And what I think that does is it gives him a little bit more momentum going into his service motion. Mm-hmm. And that way he doesn't actually have to swing the racket as hard to generate the same pace. Mm-hmm. And in doing and, and, and because he's not swinging the racket as hard, he's actually able to place the serve a lot better. And there's two serves that he did this week that I have not seen him hit very often or uh, not nearly as successfully as he did 
over the really the course of the the whole week. I mean, he hit I think forty five aces in four, uh, four or five matches. It was pretty good. Mm-hmm. It was a slice serve in the deuce court, which really opened up the serve up the tee, the flat serve up the tee, mm-hmm. also in the deuce court. So when you establish that slice serve, it forces your you know opponent to adjust his return positioning, and that made it easier for him to get free points on the flat serve up the tee. Right. So that that was the first change that I've noticed. The second change I've noticed is this is a great serve that you see Federer doing it. You see Joe Joe Wilfried Songa doing it. You see Serena Williams doing it. That's the slice serve in the ad court up the tee. Mm-hmm. That is an extremely valuable serve because, you know, even if you hit it flat in the ad court, it is coming into the point of contact. It's it's drifting into the point of contact. Whereas the slice serve in the ad court up the tee uh, is trailing away from the point of contact, and it forces again the returner to adjust their positioning. It's not a serve that most returners are expecting. They're expecting a flat serve that will come into their point of contact. And I think he got a lot of free points from establishing his spot serve. And 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 it was really the result of a technical change to step into a serve and allow him to not have to swing so hard the racket and be more accurate. Those were the two changes that I thought were pretty, pretty impressive. Um, and there was one more thing that I thought he did a really good job of, and but it really only came up against Karlovich. He kind of adopted a a grass court return strategy where um, he he was varying the return. Sometimes he would block it and hit it flat, but other times he was leaving it. He was just chipping the return. And when you have a serving volleyer, and if you're able to chip the return and force him to volley up mm-hmm. on the first volley, that facilitates a lot more passing shots. And Monfils does have good passing shots, but he wasn't getting any looks because he was just doing a straight, you know, blocking of the return, which, you know, Karlovich was easily putting away. And Karlovich wound up in the second and and particularly in the third set making his own adjustment, which I think cost him his serve, which is that he stopped trying to volley, get get to the first volley, and he started slowing down on his serving volley, his approach to the net, and he was hitting half volleys. So he actually was keeping himself, you know, further away from the net, which also facilitated uh, Monfils's passing shot. But he was doing that because Monfils was getting that really nice chip return that forces the uh, serve and volley to volley up, and that's that 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 was a great mental tactical adjustment that he made in the match that I think you know allowed him to win that third set. Yeah, those are all really fantastic points. Uh, I just want to kind of recap them. The first one, um, I believe you said, was that he was uh, he changed his serve so that he was carrying more of his momentum forward. So, and just to clarify, so he was tossing uh, the ball more forward as well, right? Right. He so he was tossing the ball forward more, but he was also just stepping into the serve, whereas he used to just jump straight into the serve like Roddick. Right. You know, just basically jump straight into it. Here, he was kind of stepping into it, not as in an exaggerated way as like Adrian Monarino, but stepping into it. So. Give him a little momentum, exactly. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And so, yeah, I, you know, Karlovich also he he his toss is quite in front as well, and that allows him to bring his momentum forward. And um, when I was having a lesson with a, a coach that I work with, uh, Coach Hong in Gaithersburg, he also was making me adjust my serve by doing kind of the same thing as what Monfils was do- doing, as far as just um, you know going forward more and tossing it forward. Um, and then, you know, we bring up the points about the slice serves and just how deadly they can be. I mean, it's, it's really fantastic because especially for, um, 
Well, no, for both righties and lefties. But, uh, you know, my experience is that the slice serve is really the toughest to handle. I mean, it's, you know, on the deuce court, it's just veering away from you and you're, you know, you're way off the court and it's just hard to hit that shot, uh, yeah. even more than the kick. And for me, and, um, the slice, da- um, down the, uh, ad court is really, uh, not really utilized that much, like you mentioned. And it's, it's another tough one to handle, obviously. Um, and yeah, I, I think obviously the volleying, when you force the players to volley up, that's when you get your best chance. I mean, a lot of the smart players who, who are the best, um, at combating serving and volleyers, uh, serving and volleyers, they, uh, they do force you to hit up by, um, hitting at your feet. Right. Very, very effective, um, you know, strategies there. And obviously, obviously, you know, um, Karlovich, as everyone knows, he's 37, which is yeah. just like pretty ridiculous. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, yeah, I was lucky An enough in tennis terms. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I mean, although as we'll talk about later, there's a guy who's even older, uh, in the doubles granted, but, yeah. um, yeah. And I, I was really lucky to talk to Karlovich twice, at one-on-one interview once after his semi-final win and just kind of asked him about how he uh, maintains his longevity. And he said that he's really actually put in a lot more work in the past few years. Um, especially, uh, he mentioned on the track and in the weight room and, uh, stretching and stuff like that. So just, uh, kudos to him for, Continuing to compete at such an amazing, uh, or such a, you know, old age in tennis terms, as we say. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and just uh, definitely appreciate Monfils's resilience, as you mentioned. I mean, a lot of people would, would give up in that situation and, uh, you know, it looked super bleak out there. And I guess Monfils is what? He's like, he was 0 9 in ATP 500 in Masters finals. Right. Right. Yeah. And it was something like 5 and 19 overall in all of his finals. And, uh, so not a particularly good record, and I, and I believe it's his first title in a couple of years. Yes, you are yeah. definitely correct. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> it was kind of funny, um, maybe degrading to him, but, uh, well, actually not to him, but I remember one of the commentators, it might have been Courier, he was saying on the TV, like, you know, uh, Monfils has a, t- uh, you know, a bad record in finals, but it's the ones when you lose to players like Stepanik rather than the ones to like Nadal where that it hurts. Right. And I'm like, damn, I hope Raddick isn't listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a bit harsh. But, um, yeah. well, you know, when you look at the pedigree of Monfils, and I know we have other things to talk about, but I just want to point out that, you know, Monfils is a player who – you go back to 2004, he won the first three out of the four major junior titles. Okay, mm-hmm. He was three matches away from doing a junior grand slam, only the second one in the open air. That hadn't been done since 1983 when Stefan Edberg did it before his first year on the ATP Tour. So Monfils is a player who has the pedigree. And if you look, you know, you look at him physically, you look at him as, as far as, you know, just, you know, being a top player for a long period of time, there's no reason why he can't do better with one or two exceptions. Mm-hmm. And that is, of course, some decision making, maybe a little bit of commitment. Yeah. Um, but, he, you know, he's the, definitely a player who I think he doesn't have as good a hands as the other French players. So that's always been sort of, in my opinion, his albatross. He doesn't really have good hands. As a result of that, you know, French players like to entertain, but most most of the time they entertain with their hands. Monfils likes to entertain with his kind of his physicality. Mm-hmm. And I think if he can continue to sort of 
simplify and structure his game around a strategy, uh, you know, to use his athleticism, but in a, in a, in a, in a more constructive way, the sky's the limit for this guy. He's still very, very strong, very fit. You know, he, he, he has, he's got it in him. Um, you know, and like the, the guy who won the last major junior major in 2004, Andy Murray, you know, he's got a long career ahead of him. He's still got time to, to turn it around, even if it's late in the game. Yeah, definitely agreed there, uh, Malumba. And yeah, I mean, I, I talk with my friend Victor, who was my photographer, uh, a lot about Monfils. He's just such a dynamic and explosive player. But I mean, you know, you even saw it like in the Karlovich match where I think he had a short ball and for some reason he decided to do like a big jump step or, you know, he jumped and then right. he had a soft forehand and yeah. managed to win the point. But um, yeah, sometimes he just lets his athleticism uh, get the best of him in terms of entertainment, but um, yes, yeah. I mean, just unbelievably talented and a great personality for the game, and you extremely know, extremely popular. Yes, very endearing to the fans. They all love him. Um, really amazing, and I also really appreciated um, that he mentioned how he wanted his name, uh, you know, yes. on, on the stadium along with uh, legend Arthur Ashe and also Yannick Noah. Yes, um, that was that was wonderful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just uh, any other thoughts about the final, uh, the men's final? Well, he's the fourth Af- uh, black man to win this tournament. Uh, he's the third Frenchman, uh, including Arnaud Clément, which he interestingly, his former Davis Cup captain, did not mention. <laughs> but it's perfectly understandable because the current captain, Yannick Noah, is, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's a hero in French tennis for many reasons. The last Frenchman to win a major, captain of the, uh, of the uh, resurgent Davis Cup team in 1991. So I understand that. But historically, the context of that, I think, is uh, it's a really interesting uh, context. And I'm also happy that he's on that ring of champions in the uh, Arthur Ashe court because he deserves it. And uh, he, it's, it's, it's good for the tournament, I think. I hope he comes back next year to defend the title. I do too, because I think um, he took what a five-year uh, break from this tournament. That's right. That's right. It was five years when he lost the final to Stepanak that he should have won, which I guess <laughs> Courier was referring to there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's really funny. And, and so, actually, so this has not been an ATP 500 for a long time. I forgot. Was it? Is this the first year there was an ATP 500? I believe the first year was I want to say I want to say it was 2011. Okay. I'd say that was the first year. I know it was a 500 in 2012 uh-huh. uh, in the Olympic year, but it may have been a 500 in 2011. Mm-hmm. But the, but the, that's I'm just going off the top of my head here. Right. And another interesting fact that I learned from a friend is that so this tournament uh, this year was not part of the U.S. Open series because of some sort of uh, like. TV contract or some That's contract. Right. Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting to note. Right. Yes, Adele wanted to have some independence from the U.S. Open Series. And, and instead of being a part of the U.S. Open Series, which used to be the first tournament in the U.S. Open Series, now it's uh, he's given the exclusive broadcast rights to uh, – or they have given the exclusive broadcast rights to Tennis Channel. So. And so that that's okay. So he didn't want to be part, be a part of the U.S. Open series because he would get that exclusive uh, TV channel deal. Is that what that? Right. Okay. Yeah, I think it's it's more money for the tournament, and I think also there were some issues as far as uh, which uh, how much coverage they would get with the U.S. Open series because 
the ESPN has basically the uh, the uh, I believe it's ESPN that has the the contract on the US Open series and they're not showing a lot of matches so they would be limited exposure if they remained a part of the US Open series and I I think Dell had an issue with that uh, you know D- D- Donald Dell doesn't suffer fools he, he's he's a guy who knows exactly how to make a tournament what it should be and and I think he's hit the ball out of the park on this one because it's the wall to wall tennis channel coverage I think is, has been great for the tournament yeah, no, I think he does a great job, and um, yeah, I mean, my dad certainly enjoyed it. He only came out one day because of the heat. Oh, did he? Uh, yeah, he came out on Friday, so it was kind of fun to hang with him for a little bit, along with my mom. But um, yeah, it was just too hot in general for a lot of people. But the you know he was able to watch on Tennis Channel and uh, just really enjoy it. So yeah, just a great tournament. I I do have to say again, I felt slightly bad for Karlovich. I guess yes. I mean. You know, just looking at the disappointment and how he was serving for it, and um, yeah, but uh, and you know his age as well. But yeah, um, we'll see. We'll see what he does. He's still, like you said, he won Newport. Um, you yes. know, doing great, and I think he's like up to twenty-seven now or so, and his career high is fourteen. So he's um, doing pretty good for his age. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So another uh, actually great final uh, was between. Uh, this is the men's doubles final. Uh, yes. So it was between um, Edward Roger Vaselin from France uh-huh. and Daniel Nesser from Canada. Uh, Nesser is 43 years old, which is, yeah. um, I mean, he's older than I am. <laughs> yeah, no, well, no, I know you're a young, young looking guy. So I'm a young 42. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are practically brothers. No, um, and and uh, so they defeated, narrowly defeated Alexander Paya and Lucas Kubat. Yes. Um, which for some reason I think of a robot when I think of Kubat. <laughs> <laughs> um, he hits the crap out of the ball. But um, just a really cool match. I, I mean, it was 7-6, 7-6. I think one of the tie breaks was uh, 7-3 and the other 7-4. But the resilient part of Vaseline Vals- Nestor is that they actually had four break points in the first set. They couldn't convert. Um and they still pulled it out. And um, Vaseline is, uh, was a really nice, super nice guy from France. And he was always available for interviews. And I appreciated that. But um, uh, just, uh, you know, really, you know, doubles is so much fun to watch. And I, just if you could give your impressions on the match, that would be great. Well, I, I, what, what I did catch at the match, I really enjoyed. I do I prefer watching doubles live than in person. I think you get a much greater appreciation for sort of the, uh, the the very specific but very high level of technique required to be good at doubles. Mm-hmm. Um, I think doubles gets a bad rap in tennis in general uh, as being, you know, what you do when you can't play singles anymore. And to some degree that may be true. Mm-hmm. But the doubles specialists are outstanding doubles players. They are outstanding mm-hmm. tennis players who happen to specialize in doubles. And what I really liked was – I, you know, first of all, both Nestor and Vaslan hit the ball quite flat, mm-hmm. which is understandable for Nestor because he's, you know, my generation. I'm guessing he grew up and he learned to play with a wood racket. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, Roger Vaslan is, is a French player who also hits the ball very flat. But like all French players, he does have uh, some very nice touch shots as well, mm-hmm. which usually a player develops after a longer period of playing in doubles, which is one of the reasons why doubles is so good for uh you know the singles game because you develop shots you find angles you find touches that you might not necessarily explore in a singles match 
you learn how to do them in doubles and then you can apply them elsewhere. And I just really like the way the two of them sort of combined and also, you know, the way they mix between hitting really hard flat shots when they needed to, but then finding the angles. I I thought they were a great combination. I don't know how often they've played, but they were, they they seem to be quite comfortable with each other. Yeah, definitely. Um, and Vaseline seemed to be surfing, uh, serving out of his mind, at least when I watched him. Uh, just, I don't know, hitting a ton of aces. And uh, Nestor and um, Vaseline are, were very impressive on the returns. And uh, I, I really think that they they deserve to win, although they kind of, I don't know, they just didn't quite, they weren't quite able to close. Like, they could have won maybe with one break in each set, but, I mean... Uh, kudos to Peya and Kubat for, you know, giving it their all. Because I think both of um, uh, Vaseline and uh, I can't pronounce it as well as you are uh, you're doing, but um, Vaseline and Nestor they are both top ten doubles players. Yes, uh, in the world, yeah, seated number two, and the other guys I think were twenty three and twenty one. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I just what stuck in my mind was just uh, one forehand return that. Um, Kuba just absolutely crushed down the line and uh yeah I don't know why I mentioned that but <laughs> it just was a rocket um yeah he's a he's a very strong player who hits uh like a ton of bricks and uh that can be that has its place but I think uh, ultimately in doubles you you, you know uh, an understanding of the angles and how to partner with somebody I think is more valuable than that and you look at players like Mark Knowles, Lander Pays, Dan Nestor, uh Zimjanovic uh, Zimjanic, I think, as to how you pronounce his name. By the way, Nestor was born in Serbia, I should point out. But mm. or the old, well, it, it was Yugoslavia at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, those players really show that, you know, that, 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 that the level of technique required is very high. And that's why they can continue to play for a long period of time. And it's the same with, you know, hackers like me. You know, I, you know, if I, you know at some point I'm going to, need to focus on doubles as well so yeah and um yeah just to reiterate i mean doubles is really doubles can help your singles game for sure but uh, doubles is really you know very different there's a lot of a lot of strategy and you know if you're so in my case for example like um i was brought up playing a ton of singles almost exclusively singles until college really and um you know aggressive baseline or whatever but um, you know, you need, you need a really, you need a good serve, a solid serve. Um, you need great volleys and right. there are a lot of singers players who don't have that. I, I mean, right. I'm friends with a lot of them, you know, they're in five O leagues and they play singles well, but when you put them on a doubles court, they don't know what to do. And, right. um, so these guys on the tour, uh, doubles tour are specializing. Um, they really have great serves, great returns, great, uh, first volleys and, those are really the keys that you need to keep working on. I, I, I don't know if I'm mistaken, but I feel like I talked to... Oh, that's right. I just confirmed on the internet. Thank God for the internet. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I think Nestor actually played against Vaseline in the, um, at, at Wimbledon. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think Benetou and Vaseline, they, yeah, they played together against. That's Nestor who it Inga. was. At first, I was thinking it was a Yodra, but that—that's. Mm. But then uh, he's retired, so I knew it was another another Frenchman that he partners with regularly. So yeah, another great doubles player. Well, three great doubles players. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, that was a great match. Um, let's see what else we got. And yeah, I, I forgot if I mentioned, but twenty-three straight titles for Nestor. 
Um, it's incredible. So hopefully he'll keep going on. Uh, yeah. So one match that I I watched the end of. Um, so this was a uh, Yanina Wickmeyer against uh, Lauren Davis. Um, you know Davis very impressive. I think I read that she had won only three tour matches all year. Right. And then she won four in this tournament. Um, and she beat uh, a wild card in the previous round. Uh, I think Pegula, who had a great right. tournament as well. Yeah. Right. But um, Wickmeyer, wow, you know, I I hadn't seen her in person until this tournament, and she she reminds me a bit of like uh, she reminds me of Burditch kind of because she's see, yeah pretty tall and strong, and I think also the like shoulder uh, I don't know what you call it width yeah. or whatever it just looks yeah. kind of similar. <laughs> she's, got, she's got that coat hanger shoulders, those coat yeah. hanger shoulders like like <laughs> Phil Jackson, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it. Um, so yeah, I guess, you know, she was just a little too much for Davis. I mean, she, you know, Davis, uh, I think it was Davis's first tour final. Is that right? I believe so. Yes. Okay. Okay. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how much you got to watch of that match, but it, I did it, see a little bit. Okay. Um, I, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, just going back to Davis for a bit there, you know, she had actually, a really an outstanding tournament. I mean, mm-hmm. she beat uh, Pagula, who had beaten Stozer, who was having a really good run. Pagula beat two really good players in succession in uh, uh, Christina McHale and then uh, Sam Stozer. That's mm-hmm. that's no joke. Those are two really good players. Um, and I think Davis, I think Davis sort of ran out of steam by the by the final uh, because she had been playing a lot of tennis to begin with. She beat some players who will make you earn it, mm-hmm. um, and. And I, the match that I was really impressed with her was the match against uh, uh, Camila Giorgi, that yes. hard-hitting Italian uh, 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 that was out on the uh, grandstand. You know, Giorgi is a player who can hit like a ton of bricks. Oh, yeah. But the problem, of course, is that if you make her hit successively more and more shots, mm-hmm. and if you can successfully play the ball deep and high and force her to move backwards because she's a player who likes to move forward when even, even when she's hitting ground strokes. Davis did a great job of getting a lot of balls back, first of all, so she's very tenacious, but she's also quite accurate in her, in her returns. And she was playing the balls very deep, high and deep and forcing Georgie to move back. And the minute Georgie hit a short ball, which she does tend to do, she was able to step in and finish off the point. So I was really impressed with Davis with her sort of the, her mind at work. You could really see her mind working when she plays. I really felt that in that final she was just she ran out of steam. Not that Wickmeyer is a pushover, but she would have been a little bit more competitive than what she showed. Um, but you know, Yanina Wickmeyer is, is an outstanding player. Um, she's had some problems in the, in the last few years. She had some injury problems. She also was caught up in some kind of, um, a really a kind of a phony doping scandal where she didn't report her location Hmm. to the doping, uh, authorities. Uh, I think she was, you get, you get three strikes. So the rule is you have to report where you are for at least, uh, three hours a day, every day so that you can be, so that they can do out of season doping tests well she didn't do that three times and it's three strikes and you're suspended mm-hmm. and that's what happened to her it also happened to Xavier Malice another Belgian player which I think was a coincidence mm-hmm. um, and I think her career really started to tail off at that time because she was a Belgian player who was kind of coming in right on the cusp of 
on the end of the careers of Justine Hennin and uh, Kim Kleisters. And they both retired, but then they came back right when she was getting very strong. And she actually lost to Justine Hennin in, 20, in the Australian Open in 2010. It was a three-set match, a really tough match. Um, and I, she, she's always kind of felt like she hasn't had the support of the Belgian Tennis Federation. And then she had those issues with the doping, and then she's had injuries. But she is a player that has a lot of potential as far as, you know, like you said, she's a very big girl. She's very strong. She hits hard. She plays big babe tennis, but she's uber competitive. And that's the thing that I really like about her game, too. I mean, if Davis maybe had, you know, four or five more inches on it, she'd probably be a lot more competitive than she is. But Wickmeyer is every bit as tenacious, every bit as resilient, every bit as competitive, and she's bigger and stronger as an athlete. Yeah, no, great point. Uh, I was actually Googling uh, Wickmeyer, and um, so I don't blame her, but she actually dropped her first match at the Rogers Cup. Um, yeah. But, um, but, you know, I mean, as we'll talk about later, she pulled the double at the City Open, and she won the doubles with Nicolescu. So, I mean, yes. heck of a lot of tennis, great work. Um, but, yeah, uh, definitely impressed by her work. And, uh, you know, when you mentioned Davis's win over Stozer, I, I remembered to your expert prediction uh, last show where, <laughs> where I said, oh, you know, I think Stozer's going to do great because um, I watched her on the practice court for two minutes. And, right. uh, and you know, you said, hey, you know, in the, uh, in the tough moments lately, she hasn't been that great. And so she ended right. up losing to Davis. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just great, uh, great analysis there. And... One well, are there any other thoughts on the singles match for the women? Well, I mean, just overall for the tournament, you know, it was it was like we talked before. It wasn't a great tournament for a lot of Americans that you would expect to have done better. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly, I was looking for more from Christina McHale, um, but you know, where one door closes, another one opens. It's mm-hmm. uh, well, like a kitchen door; it opens and opening and closing. So. Uh, out goes Mikhail, in comes Pegula. You know, uh, out goes uh, Sloane Stevens, and then a couple of matches later, Lauren Davis makes her way to the finals. So, in the end, it was uh, both on the men's and the women's side, pretty good tournaments for Americans, I have to say. Um, although, you know, not no Americans on either side won the tournament, actually. But uh, nevertheless, I think it was a good showing for Americans, and I think that's very good for uh, tennis in general. Because uh, I think it's important for tennis to have good American players. It's a large market, even even now com- uh, compared to the rest of the world. As consumers, the American tennis market is very large and it's important. So I think that's a good sign. And, and for years, the the women have been way ahead of the men, and it was no different here. We had an American in the final, and there I think there were more men in the men's field than American men in the men's field than American women in the women's field, and we had two semifinalists and one finalist. So. Pretty good. Yeah, definitely not a bad showing. And didn't Karlovich beat three Americans? Uh, he did. <laughs> he, yeah. Uh, he beat Baker, Sock, and uh, Johnson. So, uh, and, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Uh, Jack Sock is a player who I thought sh- she should have beaten Karlovich. He had a lot of opportunities to break in that match, but the mistake that he made was that he continued to play Karlovich as if he is a player with good hands and good movement. Mm. And he was really trying to thread the needle on his passing shots. He was overhitting on uh, from the baseline. I mean, he was 
he really was making life very hard for himself. And unlike Monfils, who adjusted, knowing that Karlovich would have trouble with low short volleys and and that sort of thing, uh, Sock played him like a like a you know like a standard player, and it cost him because he had a lot of opportunities to break and he really blew it. But having said that, three Americans in succession, uh, you know, Karlovich. I don't know what it is with the Croatians. Yeah. They've really been sticking it to the Americans in the last couple of weeks here with the first of the Davis Cup and then <laughs> here at the City Open. I know. But, uh, it was it was it was it was a good it was a good opportunity lost, I think, for Sock. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Yeah, and I agree. Um, Yeah, I was just thinking that about how brutal it was to, I mean, first they beat three, you know, three matches from the USA side lost in the Croatia tie. And then, you know, Karlovich beats three over there. City Open. Um, But yeah, um, you know, Johnson, Johnson did well to beat Isner. Um, Yes. That one was a tough one. Uh, now Now I can't remember. That was two. No, that was two tie break sets. Yes, it was two tie break okay. sets. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and the other one was the last one was seventeen fifteen. Um, right. yeah, the short ball at six four, I think, and yeah. um, the yeah. Isner miss and all that. But Johnson, I don't know. Do you think Johnson was a little too tired when he played Karlovich? Because it seemed like, I mean, he dropped his doubles match um, with mm-hmm. uh, Sock pretty badly four and zero. I don't know if they were just. Well, I don't want to insinuate that they were tanking, but I don't know if he was trying yeah. to save energy or not for the Karlovich. But I just. He seemed like he was really tired out there, and he actually yeah. kind of blew up too at one point with a. a, a he thought a, a let was missed, like a, you know they they didn't call a let for Karlovich, and but yeah, your thoughts on whether it was just simply Karlovich dominating him, or he just got tired, or maybe both. Well, I mean, first off, you know, Marbon, nobody tanks in tennis. You you you, right. you got to know that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, so <laughs> I think that Johnson. I agree with you. I think Johnson uh, was a little bit tired, first of all, but I think he was also frustrated with uh, with the lack of opportunities uh, against Karlovich. It's mm-hmm. it's it's very difficult to play Karlovich because. You feel like you're a better player than him, and he really disabuses you of that notion. Uh, because you know, so you have to be very precise. You have to take the few opportunities that come, and the great players can do that, which is why he doesn't have such a great record against the top players. But I felt Johnson was a little bit tired, and I think he was. Uh, you're right; he was frustrated. He was saying, you know, that on that serve that he thought was a let. Uh, that, that I think it was called the let. And he said it was six inches above the net. Mm. Um, I'm not so sure that was the case, but neither here nor there. Ultimately, the guy has to – you have to focus when you're playing Karlovich yeah. because you never know when the opportunity that you need to exploit is going to come and go. And I just felt that he was a little bit uh, at his wit's end. It was a very emotional victory for him over, over, over uh, Isner you know, because last year they also had a tremendous yeah. battle. Uh, at the City Open, and that at that time, Isner prevailed. Mm-hmm. So I think he, you know, Johnson is uber competitive. You don't win, I don't what was it, 76 matches in college in a row, something like that? Yeah. Some yeah. enormous number like that? So you don't do that without being super competitive, and he's going to want to get his back over Isner. So I think 
he was a little bit emotionally drained as well. Uh, but he played very well this week, uh, generally speaking. Um, and I think good things are on their cards for Johnson. Um, but yeah, I, th- I, I just felt that, you know, very few players had very many opportunities. And frankly, Monfils should have lost that match. Uh, I just think Karlovich ran out of gas too at the critical moments. Agreed. Yes, no, definitely. And you might have thought about uh, winning too much. Um, but yeah, uh, two players that, um, you know, kind of didn't do too great in their last matches for different reasons. One, um, Zverev, which I, I can't remember if you were in the press conference, but I was. Okay, great. Yeah. So you know that he, you know, he, he was throwing up the night before he, he played his, uh, semifinal match against, uh, Monfils. And so he was kind of drained. Right. Um, especially the second set. But one that, that was kind of, this is really disappointing for me. So Benoit Per, um, he, you know, he's extremely talented. I think he's 24-ish in the world. And, um, but when he played against Zverev in the quarters, I mean, it's like, and apparently this is a recurring issue for him. So he just completely lost focus. And, um, right. yeah, I mean, he, I don't know. He just kind of raged out there and, and didn't, it's almost that one. I mean, it really almost seemed like he tanked. I don't know. Yeah. Um, he's a bit of a hothead. I mean, there's, there's different kinds of tanks. There's, you know, the <laughs> guy who, there's that guy who thinks he's going to lose and just gives up, you yeah. know, uh, and then there's the guy who just can't be bothered to compete, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and I think that Benoit Paire is another player, you know, this seems to be a running theme with French players, very good hands, mm-hmm. very talented, like you said, uh, very big and strong, uh, not, not, not very strong, but very tall, very rangy. He's got that sort of Ellsworth Vines physique, the, yeah. the, that enormous serve, long wingspan, very thin, moves like a lynx. Um, but there are some limitations to his game technically, and I think that affects him mentally. Mm-hmm. I think he pulls out of points a little bit early because he relies a little bit too much on the quality of his hands. And because he relies on the quality of his hands – when the situation gets tight, when he gets a little tired, mm-hmm. he makes errors because his technique isn't where it should be. Right. Sometimes you can be too talented. And when you rely on that talent and something else comp- uh, compromises that, you kind of, it, it kind of works on him mentally. And I've seen that happen to him more than one time. Um, I've seen him intentionally hit the ball straight out of the stadium off the return to serve. Just because he was angry at an umpire. <laughs> I mean, crazy things like Man. this. Yeah, he did that off his serve, off the, sorry to interrupt you, but off like a, a first serve that he missed, he just smacked it out of the stadium, that match. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that he hit a return straight yeah. out of the stadium. No, I, I mean, know, that's different. That's crazy. I mean, it's crazy. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know be professional. Oh, but I man. think sometimes you can be a little bit too talented. Mm-hmm. And I think he's one of those guys that is a, can be too talented and doesn't quite have the technique where it should be. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. You can't just rely on your talent. Um, hard work, man, pays off. Smart work, yeah. smart hard yes. work. But um, yeah, you know, speaking of technique, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, his forehand doesn't seem very smooth to me. I don't know. It seems like he he does a loop, but then he kind of like stops it when it's at the bottom and then hits it. I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are on his forehand. Right. It's it's not a very compact stroke. I mean, he does keep the racket head on his, the right side of his body, which is right. a step in the right direction. But it is not a compact stroke, and, and as a result, the timing has to be just right. So, and I think that's that's a that's a, a kind of a stroke that has evolved from talented hands. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe he gets uh, a, a strange angle 
on it, which allows him to impart spin that he wouldn't otherwise be able to do. He is one of these players that uses topspin to keep the ball low, as opposed to most players that use it for net clearance and, uh, you know, keep it in the court. Uh, he uses topspin a lot like Jack Sock, actually, not as much spin, to keep the ball low over the net. Uh, and both of them were caught, in my opinion, both of them were caught making the mistake of just trying to keep the ball too low over the net with topspin. Mm-hmm. You know, that that is not necessary unless there's a reason to do it. And I think both of them have a tendency to do that more uh, just out of, uh, like, by rote. They're just used to doing it, so they do it all the time. And sometimes it's counterproductive. And they make errors when they shouldn't. You know, a player that's able to hit with that much topspin should not be dumping the ball in the net. It, you know, that that's, that's kind of a, a technical mistake there. So I, I just think that he's another, you know, talented Frenchman who... Uh, who just, you know, uh, maybe relies a little bit too much on his talent. Agreed. Um, yeah, another player who kind of impressed me, I was able to talk to, is, you know, ranked outside the top 100 and uh, on the WTA tour, but um, Riza Ozaki, you know, she had a yes. pretty good tournament. I mean, I, I believe quarters of uh, women's uh, singles and then made the finals of doubles. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, she's playing pretty well. What do you think about her? I was very pleased uh, to see how well she did. You know, uh, she she she's won a number of uh, smaller tournaments. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's uh, I think she's won four ITF titles, which is pretty good. She's twenty two years old. Um, she 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 was she's very competitive. She's very uh, very very tenacious, and uh, she did well uh, to basically to allow Sloane Stevens to destroy herself. Right. Um, and, you know, that, that is as effective as anything else in, in tennis. You know, sometimes you just have to be better than the guy on the other side of the net. Um, as Andre Agassi said so famously in his uh, excellent memoir, Open. Mm-hmm. But she's a, she's, she's a good player that I, I enjoy watching just because, again, I like the way she works through. You can see her mind working in matches. Mm-hmm. You know, she, she makes the right decision nine times out of ten. And then the tenth time where she doesn't make the right decision is usually because she has no choice. Yeah. You know, she, she, so she's not a player that's going to blow people off the court. Uh, she's going to work her way through points. And I, you know, I, she's not the best Japanese player in the world. I think I would put that uh, at this point on uh, Misaki Doi. I don't know if you know this player. She's a, a crafty left-handed player uh, from Japan who is uh, very talented but just doesn't move that well. But Ozaki is a player who uh, I think has some, you know, she, she, she'll have a good career and I, and I hope she comes back next year. I like watching her play because she works through points and you can learn a lot about decision making, shot selection from watching a player like her. Yeah, no, definitely a great point with uh, with her and her game. Yeah, I just looked up Masaki Doi. I hadn't really seen her play much, but she's 35 in the world, so that's pretty high up there. Yeah, she's a good player. Yeah, and... Um, so now I want to get into kind of just uh, two players, maybe one on the men's side and one on the women's sure. side, who you think had a pretty disappointing tournament. Um, yeah. Yeah. Who would you pick? So on the women's side, it had to be Sloan Stevens. Right. I mean, you know, you're defending champion. Uh, you got to – I think – I, as I said before, I think she was a little ir- – she might have been a little bit irritated that she was mm-hmm. on a small court. I think she may have also been carrying an injury because uh, apparently she had uh, 
an injury in her match that she lost to Camila Georgie today in uh, in Toronto. Oh. So um, or yesterday, I beg your pardon. Uh, and she had she was she was uh, leading the second set. It was, they had a very tight first set. She was leading the second set, and then she suddenly lost like four out of the last five games of the set. So she may have been carrying an injury, but I was disappointed in her performance. Uh, She lost to uh, Risa Ozaki. So um, I think, you know, that that was probably the the most uh, disappointing performance on the the ladies' side. And on the men's side, uh, easily the most disappointing performance was Grigor Dimitrov. Yes. Um, you know, I, I enjoy watching Daniel Evans play. Don't get me wrong. I, I really like his game. He, too, is another player who kind of relies on his talent, right? If you, if you look carefully at him when he plays, you can actually see a, a very uh, a small but discernible uh, spare tire around his uh, midsection. So he's not the fittest player on tour. He's not a guy that's going to outrun people, you know, run down every shot. He's a guy who relies on his talent. He's extremely talented. But Dimitrov should be beating Daniel Evans. He should be beating that that player. And his performance was disappointing for a lot of reasons. But mostly, I think, you know, I went back and I looked at old, you know, 2014 uh, clips of Dimitrov at his best. I really feel that he has lost some pop on the serve and on the forehand. Hmm. Uh, And it has been in the last you know, 12 to 18 months that that's happened, it happens to have coincided with a racket change. Hmm. Now, I don't know what his deal was. I know that he was developing that racket for a couple of years with Wilson, and uh, maybe they wanted to coincide with the racket change that Federer made or something like that. I think he is a player who may want to contemplate going back to his old racket. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at his, his matches in 2014 – and the first couple of uh, months of 2015, he had a lot more pop on his first serve, which took pressure off his second serve, which has always been shaky. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's always been a rhythm and feel player on the serve, especially. And he's lost pop on his forehand. And because of that, you know, he's a player who runs around his back end as much as he can. Uh, to do that, you need to have pop on your on your forehand, particularly the inside out, but also the inside in forehand, because... Otherwise, players are going to sit on the inside off forehand like they do against uh, with Jack Sock. So you need pop, and he has lost some pop on 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 uh, on the serve and the forehand. And I think, unless there's some technical issue, I, it seems to me that this is down to the racket. He may want to go with a paint job and just go back to the old racket because you know he was doing a lot better with it, and he wouldn't be the first person to go back to an old racket. Yeah, that's a very interesting insight um, that I didn't really know um, about the racket change. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, I can't really argue with you at all about Stevens. Um, I suppose I can't really <laughs> argue about Dimitrov as well, but one player who I guess had kind of a not the greatest tournament and also has been on a bit of a losing streak, uh, former top tenor in the world, uh, uh, Kevin Anderson, Yes. Um, although I will say that I was impressed by Malik Jaziri, who defeated him and uh, played a tough yes. match against Zverev, but um, uh, just kind of more of a case of Anderson kind of going on a little bit of a slide and seem- seeming like he's not quite as confident in his game, but um, I hope we'll make it a- back up there. I actually interviewed his trainer, Alistair McCaw, on a previous episode, who's uh-huh. uh, just a really a super motivating guy. I mean, if you check out this guy's uh, Facebook page, you're going to get pumped uh, to, to work out and, and better yourself. But um, yeah, just, just one guy who 
a uh, huge serve and um you know, I mean that's his main weapon and volleys and stuff but uh didn't do that great and it's a bit on a of a bit he's on a bit of a slide so I don't know what he's you think slump, of him. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm I'm really glad that you mentioned Zaziri because you know he had a really good tournament. Yes. Uh he had three tough matches all went the distance two of them against two of the tallest players he's ever going to face. <laughs> um he's a player with an enormous amount of talent mm-hmm. uh but I've heard um, here and there that he, this may be the first year that he's ever worked out with weights in his, in his life. Wow. Which is incredible to think of a, a professional athlete in 2016 who's never worked out with weights, but it's also a testament to his talent. He reminds me a lot of Baghdadis. Mm-hmm. He's got great hands. He's got great hand-eye coordination and he's got good mobility and he uses that from the backcourt primarily, but he is a player that is, is, uh, very talented and, I think has the potential to be also a late bloomer. Um, maybe not win a major, but certainly to, you know, to make some good career progression towards the end of his career here because he basically has limited his training and preparation. Um, so there's a, he, he, he may have just pushed his ceiling a little bit further out. And I really enjoyed watching him play. I thought he was very cerebral against uh, Sasha Zverev, who should have won that in two sets. But Jaziri started feeding him a steady diet of sliced backhands mm-hmm. uh, to both the forehand and the backhand, really forcing Zverev to generate his own pace, which he's not necessarily that good at yet. Um, so he was very, he's very cerebral and very talented, and I like watching players like that. Um, and he's the one who beat Anderson in the first place. So I, I, I'm glad you mentioned him because he's another player that I enjoy watching. Yeah, no, same here. Uh, you know, very nice guy as well. Um, I was able to interview him and, you know, very upbeat and, um, yeah, just had some great returns watching him, uh, watching him play against Anderson and, uh, player from Tunisia. He's about, uh, he's 63 in the world now and hopefully he'll do bigger and better things. Although very interestingly, I think he was four. I, well, I don't know the whole story, but he kind of has a history of, uh, retiring against um, players from Israel is it? That's correct. That? Yeah, right. Yeah. So a couple years ago, he was uh, slated to play his next match against. Uh, wasn't uh, it was a uh, Weintraub? Mm. I'm your Weintraub. Mm. And uh, he later said that he had been instructed by his tennis federation to not to play that match. I guess this was in the midst of a of a particularly heated time. Uh, between the uh, Arabs and uh, and Israelis, uh, and so he'd be, he said he had been instructed by his tennis federation not to play that match. He basically didn't play. He made up an injury. The Tunisian tennis federation was kicked out of the Davis Cup for for a year as a result of that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and he was also cleared of the same thing recently, where he actually had a legitimate injury, and I think. Um, I can't remember which one, uh, which of the Israeli players it was that he didn't play against. But yeah, the, the kind of ugly thing that you hope a player doesn't have to go through. But those players in particular, because they're usually heavily sponsored by their uh, by their tennis federations, especially when they start to show promise. Maybe not in the beginning when they're kids, but when they show promise as a professional. So he probably relies on them a lot more than we than we realize. Um, <clears throat> but fortunately, he was cleared of a second incident where he appeared to retire with an injury against an Israeli player. And, um, yeah, hats off to him. I hope he continues to do well. Yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, like you mentioned, there can be a lot of different pressures from, uh, you know, it's not just like his decision or whatnot. So it's very tough, especially in those other nations. You never know what type of 
pressures they're under. Um, but yeah, so I mean, just uh, amazing tournament again. I mean, I just can't believe it's over. Uh, it's, yeah, <laughs> look forward to it. Uh, I look forward to it so much um, during the year. And um, so, what was your favorite moment of the tournament? Um, I tell you what, it was the uh, the the start of the third set between Monfils and Sam Query. Mm. Uh, that was the first night match. That where the stadium was almost not, almost full, uh, a really uh, like a really excited, animated crowd, and I was I was just so juiced up to see that third set that I I, I felt like this is probably the most uh, the most exciting moment that I had in the whole tournament. Just just anticipating the start of that third set between those two, um, you know, Monfils extremely popular in this area, Aquarian American, another quiet American like Brian Baker. Um, and it was that I think that that moment was was the moment for me because this is also one of the first uh, places that I ever saw a night match. So uh, fascinating for me to uh, to see that. I always get kind of the uh, the butterflies at, at night matches. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah no, totally different atmosphere at night. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. So I guess jumping away from the city open, uh, you yeah. messaged me. On Twitter, after I messaged you, of course, to try to set up this interview, and uh, yeah. just huge news we've got to just mention. Oh my gosh, the man, FedEx Express, out this yeah. year. My gosh, yeah. um, you know, obviously it's in his best interest so that he can come back, but I just hope it's nothing that will be, you know, prolonged past that. And you know, it's, it's obviously going to be, you know, weird and different, uh, not seeing him play in the, the, the tournaments all year. Um, so that's that's really, you know, a bit of a blow to the game because I know a lot of people who say, oh, you know, once he's gone from the tournament, it's, you know, I don't even want to watch. So, yeah, I mean, what do you think? <laughs> well, I think that there's uh, a lot of interesting things. Um, first of all, you know, the record is not good on players coming back from extended absences from tennis. mm um, you know, John McEnroe took six months off at the end of 1985 to get married and have a kid or his wife had a kid, Tatum O'Neill at the time. Uh, he never won another major after that. Mm -hmm. In fact, he never even made another major final. And he was still a young man. He was only 26. And he'd won seven up, uh, up to then already by the time he turned 25. So uh, Mats Wielander was number one in the world. He won three out of four majors in 1988. Uh, I want to say he was 25 as well. Um, no, I take that back. He was 23 in 1988. He, he never won another tournament after that. Dang. And he took maybe uh, you know six to eight months off from the tour. Uh, Bjorn Borg. Oh, I forgot to mention something. I, I have to tell you this. Oh, but let me start. So Bjorn Borg. You know, everybody knows what happened to him. He took four or five months off at the beginning of 1982. It was just four or five months. And at the time, the ATP Tour made him start going back and qualifying for all the tournaments. And he kind of lost motivation. He wound up uh, quitting the game after another, you know, playing exhibitions. But he took four or five months off after the U.S. Open in 1981. He did play the Masters, but basically didn't play tennis for five months. He never won another tournament in his life professional tournament and by the way i should mention that bjorn borg i found this out the former coach of uh of 
Jeannie Bouchard, who was here and also had a bad performance this week. Thomas Hogstead, a Swedish player, played Bjorn Borg in the qualifying rounds of the City Open in 1993. Wow. I can believe that. <laughs> and that was 10 years after he officially retired from tennis. That was when he made that second comeback where he was using wood rackets and all that stuff. Which, if you look for it, you won't find even a single article about it, even in the archives. And I think that was because Borg had specifically asked Donald Dell to keep it a secret so that he could sort of ply his trade and try and get back into the game without uh, the embarrassment of losing in the qualifiers. Wow. Uh, but that's an interesting little uh, City Open uh, tidbit. But basically, the record of players taking extended periods of time off and coming back, very, very bad. So I hope... He's the exception like Nadal was in 2013, where he took six months off and then became the best player in the world. Uh, but I think Nadal is an exception. And, uh, and I, I, I don't see it happening for Federer, and I'm sorry to say that because I think he's been fantastic for the game. Um, another interesting thing that we're going to find out, you know, earlier in the year there was that whole debate at Indian Wells about whether or not, you know, the women are pulling their weight as far as drawing people into tennis. Uh, and that 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 was you know sort of the the basis of the comment that Ray Moore made. I mean, he made some sexist comments as well. But you know, the the real basis of that comment was that the women weren't doing enough to draw into the game. They were really relying on the popularity of Federer and Nadal. Uh, and then Jan Tirak basically said the same thing in Madrid a couple months later. Right. Federer and Nadal are now both out, and they're going to be out for a while. So now the question is, how great is the ATP Tour doing? Without Federer and Nadal, well, we're going to find out. We're going to find out if the Joker and Andy Murray can carry uh, professional tennis because uh, he's going to be out for the rest of the year. I don't see Nadal coming back and having a great year after his extended period out of the game. And so I think we're going to very quickly find out exactly how good the ATP are at what they're doing uh, based on the absence of Federer and Nadal, which we all knew was coming eventually. But uh, they just, you know, can, you know, were able to put it off for a long time. So I hope, I hope, I hope that uh, everyone is the better for it. But I'm not holding out much hope. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, it's kind of scary. But w- <laughs> one thing um, that I was just thinking about right now is that: Do you think that the City Open could possibly get a you know, push the uh, the prize pool for the women to be a little higher because if you look at it, obviously the the men's it's about like one point eight million or something, and then the right. women's is two hundred fifty. And I yeah. I'm just it would be cool if they could push it up a bit higher, um, make it a higher caliber event for the women, so we could get uh, some more great uh, women players. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think uh, that's a great point. So you know. You're right. The, I think the men, I think uh, uh, Monfils won three hundred fifty thousand dollars for winning, mm-hmm. and I think uh, uh, Wickmeyer won forty three thousand. I mean, oh. that's like a tip on top of the men's yeah. men's prize money there. <laughs> so, uh, but having said that, the City Open is a five hundred, yep. and by comparison, the women's is a two eighty, which is more like a two fifty in the men's. So they they are different tournaments, and the fields are smaller. But to your point. Yeah, it would help the women's field if they basically if they had some more money. In it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you know, I think it was a great decision to uh, you know to to prioritize the women's tournament uh, 
uh, back to back in 2000 and uh, 2010. Now, at that time, I think it was played out at the JCC, the uh, the right. Junior Tennis uh, Center in uh, College Park. But <clears throat> I think uh, I think it was in 2011 that they started playing it in uh, the the William H. Fitzgerald Tennis Center. I think that has helped the tournament, and I hope they continue to grow the women's tournament like they have done the men's tournament all these years. I think it's always. But I think the the WTA has to make a decision. Also, they have to make a decision to commit more to this tournament uh, because it's not just Donald Dell, right? It's not just the you know Washington Tennis and Education Foundation that has to make this decision. I think the WTA also has to come up with the sponsors and sort of get people in the right room together to make that tournament bigger and put some more points on the tournament because more than the money, I think it's the points that's keeping the top players away from this tournament. There's really no point in them playing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would like to see that. And that's a decision, one of the many decisions I think the WTA could do to uh, improve women's tennis. And uh, I, I would like to see them make that decision. Uh, put more points on this tournament. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, the points, like you said, is what it's all about. Um, I mean, obviously, people need money to survive, but, you know, a lot of the players, at least those can afford it, um, they fly to all these crazy places, at least in the futures anyway, they fly to third world countries to get <laughs> points just because they're easier, you know, I mean, right. in, in most cases. Um, one last topic that I just can't, I can't seem to not stay away from, even though it might be off topic, but it's about tennis, is... uh. Mr. Pokemon Go himself, Nick Kyrgios. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you read about that, but um, one so one guy that we were talking about, the uh, junior Wimbledon champion, uh, Denis Shapovalov. Um, yes. he's 370-ish in the world, and yeah. he he defeated Nick Kyrgios. And before the match, Kyrgios was tweeting about how he just couldn't stop playing Pokemon Go, and then he got some flack for that. And Right. hilarious comment when somebody said hey you know Djokovic and Nadal weren't playing um Pokemon Go when they got to number one he said yeah but do they have a um you know 2000 like level strength like Gerados or something I, I don't even know who these <laughs> characters are but um yeah what do you think about the criticism about him you know supposedly playing pokemon go i'm sure he did and like you know it, it should people just kind of butt out of what he's doing or do you think the criticism is warranted or what well you know it's interesting you know tennis and tennis history hates nothing more than a crown unworn mm-hmm. a throne unseated and when you see the amount of talent and ability that uh, Kyrgios has He's like a boy king who's just refuses to get serious. You know, it's like it's like Henry the Fifth and uh, Henry the Fourth, right? So, you know, you really, you, I think that's part of the criticism. You know, Australia is a, is a country that has a great sporting history, especially in tennis, and they don't suffer fools as far as commitment and performance. They love players who win. They're like Americans. They love players who win. And they don't have a lot of patience for players who squander their talent. So I think that's one of the reasons why the criticism is so uh, high, a- heavy against him. Having said that, uh, he is wasting his talent. He is making a lot of mistakes. And I, th- I personally feel that his, he has too many people depending on his career. And when you have a young guy who's only known one thing in his life. I mean, he was saying earlier in the year that he doesn't even like tennis. He yeah. wished he'd have been a basketball player. 
<laughs> to me, that's a guy. And if you look when he goes and he plays, he knew he was shouting at his entourage at Wimbledon. And yeah. he's, he's always got his brothers doing interviews for him. His mother is on Twitter making excuses. I think there are too many people dependent on his career. There are too many people invested in his career. His entourage is too big. And when a young guy like that has too many people in his entourage, they start to look for excuses to quit. Because they would rather quit and keep in the back of their mind the possibility that if I really gave my best effort, I could still win. Than the fear of giving their best, losing, and disappointing all these people that depend on their results. I think Kyrgios really needs to develop some sort of intrinsic motivation. He needs to be motivated to play for himself, not for fans, not for critics, and not for his entourage. And I think that's where he will start to really develop and commit as a player. Right now, I don't think he is really developed and serious and committed as a player. I think he still looks for excuses to check out competitively. Yeah, uh, just uh, wonderful, amazing points there. I mean, I, I, I definitely know some players and, you know, I mean, I'll be honest, like I think at maybe at one point in my career, I also kind of thought like that perhaps because it's like if you – you know, you can always say, oh, yeah, you know, like I didn't really try, but if I did, I would have crushed the guy, you know, exactly. um, but you didn't. So you lost. Um, and it's just I mean, you know, there's a lot of people who they just they simply they want, you know, the best for you in a sense where they want to see you try your best because, you you know, it, you should try in general to, to fulfill your talents. So, right. you know, I mean, that's just really, I think the most admirable, admirable way to go about um, life, you know, so you don't have any regrets. And so it'd be just amazing to see what Nick could do. Um, and, you know, maybe some of it is selfishness on our part, but it's also just simply saying, hey, like this guy has so much talent and it would be um, amazing to see him fulfill it. So uh, I, I definitely hope that there's someone out there that can inspire him to say, hey, you know, like, you, you can do so many great things and like, ju just do it, man. Just like give yeah. it your all. And, and, um, and it's mind blowing. I mean, that he is ranked in the top 20 and he's not, and he has this sort of attitude. I mean, yeah, my, he plays 50% of the time. My God. 50% of the time he gives his best. Yeah. yeah. I it's, mean, it's like, it's like a guy who, you know, it's like <laughs> the guy's got this unbelievable, you know, uh, uh, foot long sub, delicious, and he takes a bite and just dumps the rest of it in the in <laughs> That's what it feels like watching him play sometimes. You yeah. Know? Right. Everybody says, boy, if I had that much talent, I would this, I would that, you know, but, and, and that has a lot to do with it, that resentment, but it's, it's hard to watch sometimes. It's hard to watch. Yeah, I mean, why not eat all of that delicious Quiznos sub? I just don't <laughs> understand. That's that's the best. Exactly. That's the best comparison I've ever heard, actually. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know that? Yeah, I'm, I'm saying that because that's how I feel when I watch him play. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I I hear you. I hear you. Um, yeah, just uh, gosh, so much great uh, tennis uh, topics out there, and um, I got to tell you, Malumba, again. I mean, I just really admire the knowledge you have and i really am serious in saying this when i think uh, when i say that you really have a lot of talent out there and i think that you could do um a, a much better job than a lot of people on tv and in analyzing people's games and so i don't know i well, maybe maybe nice. one day man i mean you know you never you never know you could try to see if that could you could make that happen because you really um just have a lot of breadth of knowledge and like all these 
uh, crazy factoids that I'm just like, what? How did he know that? Um, so, <laughs> well, yeah, you're too kind. I really appreciate it. But I really, I really enjoy these conversations. I really enjoy talking tennis, and you, you're also, from my perspective, you're showing me a lot about how you know. If you're committed to something that you really love, you can you can you can make some headways, and and I'm really, you know, I, I hope I can say that I'm proud of you and how uh, and and just where you're taking the tennis files and the interviews that you've gotten. I mean, you know, I'm look I looked at your YouTube page the other day. The number of interviews you have of great players, players that I know, players that I wish I had spoken to, you know, I I, I tip my hat to you as well. Thank you. I mean, you're you know, too kind, and thanks so much. I mean, it's just wonderful to connect to passionate um, people uh, in, in the tennis world like yourself, and that's when it uh, makes life so fun. Um, and, and uh, you know, again, please, everyone, visit uh, tennis-column.blogspot.com. That is uh, Malumba's site. Uh, he has some great material on there. I, you know, I was reading your recap on the finals and just the, uh, just the, you know, the way you write is just, uh, fantastic. Um, and just like some of the comparisons and, t- you, you know, likening, you know, the stadium to a coliseum and yeah. calling, uh, Karlovich's, uh, serves thunderbolts. And it's just, uh, just great stuff. So, um, again, you know, that's tennis-column.blogspot.com. Uh, Malumba, any final words before we uh, temporarily part? <laughs> uh, just uh, thanks so much for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to uh, the next podcast and I look forward to more material and you know, on your website. And, uh, and uh, you know, thank you to, for, for showing me the way. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for all the just wonderful, um, you know, material and passion you bring to the game as well. And, uh, man, it's, it's sad that it's uh, going to be another year, but I'm sure that we will talk again about, uh, about tennis and we'll have you on soon, hopefully. So, uh, wish you all the best, Malumba, and thanks for, for joining me and, um, you know, just have a great rest of the year and enjoy the tennis. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, Malumba, take care. Take care. You too. Well, that's the show, guys. I want to thank all of you for listening to this episode of the Tennis Files podcast, and I really hope that you enjoyed uh, Malumba and I uh, talk about and analyze the players, their matches, and just uh, the pro game in general. And I want to encourage you guys to check out uh, tennisfiles.com slash ebook because I put together a free ebook for you guys entitled The Building Blocks of Tennis Success. So again, you can get that at uh, tennisfiles.com slash ebook uh, and it has a lot of tips on how to uh, you know have the right foundation uh, for your game and how to keep improving and that's uh, all totally free and uh, you know thanks again for listening um, I've got some amazing interviews coming up including an interview with a former uh, doubles grand slam champion and with a, a couple of the biggest online tennis instructors in the game so uh, i'm really looking forward to bringing those interviews to you uh, very soon um, guys just keep improving your game keep pushing yourselves to reach the next level so you can enjoy the game for years to come and be successful and i wish you all the best so uh, see you on the next episode of the tennis files podcast peace Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com. Whoops. For any of you still listening, which is probably five people, um, 
All of the interviews that I mentioned about, uh, you know, talking to the pros one-on-one at the City Open this past year, uh, they are at tennisfiles.com slash YouTube. So if you go to that URL, then you will find all the interviews and also press conferences and uh, any other videos that I took at the City Open this year online. So please enjoy those videos and have a great one. See ya.